Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Eva Lansucht, who is a professor at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito in Ecuador, and also a part-time professor at the Delft University in the Netherlands. Very nice to speak to you today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Well, the paper that we're going to be speaking about today is called Challenges and Opportunities for Academic Parents During COVID-19. And it goes over, first of all, the background to some of the challenges that academic parents have uh, in their career before the pandemic, and then looks at how these challenges changed and even provided some opportunities. Um, but the first thing I'd like to ask you about is the first thing that comes up after the title in the paper, that this is a, a five-person team, appear to be operating all around the world. So my first question to you is that how did you assemble this team and uh, how did you make decisions about dividing up the tasks? Yeah, that's a great question. And for all of the co-authors, it's the first time that I've collaborated with them and uh, for all of us together, it's our first collaboration. And I actually reached out to academics who I respect and who I've interviewed for my blog in the past on their methods of working to see if they would be interested in joining me. One of the co-authors is also a childhood friend of mine who is working in a relevant field. So she was the first person to reach out to. And then the other ones are people that I have interviewed for my blog in the How I Work series. So that's how I started to reach out to people. And actually every person that I had in mind that I reached out to agreed and was interested in the topic. So that was a, a stroke of luck, I would say. And I looked for geographical distribution to have um, researchers in the different parts of the world because we wanted to do the survey and have an international um, an international group of respondents in there so we having researchers in different parts of the world would facilitate as well reaching out to potential respondents for the survey uh, well we'll definitely link to your blog in the show notes uh, but it's mm -hmm. it's fairly similar to how we recruit interviewees for this podcast that it's people who we respect, people whose work that we've read before, people who we've sometimes collaborated with. One of the methodologies that you used, because you had both quantitative and qualitative work, it, it seems like a huge project, yes. so it's probably why you needed um, a team of people to work on it. And mm -hmm. I was interested in how you dealt with the qualitative data first. So sure. uh, in, in the paper, you note that the first thing you do mm -hmm. is you collated all of the surveys you went through a process of uh, tagging and memoing concurrent memoing doing these things at the same time trying to find patterns that came out my, my first question is uh, is this a methodology you used before or was this recommended by one of your collaborators i had started to work on research related to the doctoral defense but i hadn't gotten around to actually writing up the paper so i had started to read about the use of qualitative methods and then the method that we used the um uh, that that method was recommended by one of the collaborators so what we did is in practical terms we used the survey platform which actually has a tagging option for text so that we could work in the cloud and 
we divided the questions amongst the three of us who worked on, on the qualitative part to each of us tag different questions. And then we had separate meetings on um, what we found from there. We also, each of us prepared a memo in document and uh, overview table of the different tags that we had, number of mentions, and then we organized them into overview tables per question where we organized the different tags or topics into parent topics and organized it in that way. And then wrote uh, the story of, of that went into the paper around it. Uh, um, for people who are listening, uh, it might seem like I'm starting off with some fairly geeky, nerdy questions, but uh, I've always worked in qualitative data. And for my previous uh, research project into international teaching assistants, I, I did the I did the same kind of thing. I was kind of interested in the in the memoing document and whether it was a shared document or you all did it separately and then came back together. How, how did you organize that? Yes, that's a, a great question. And it's actually a part that we discussed a lot because one of the collaborators did um, enlighten us on the importance of memoing, especially since we're working together, we wanted to make sure that we are looking at the same meaning for different tags that we're using. So what we did is she developed an example of one of these memoing documents, shared it with us through Google Drive, and then we set up similar documents for every um, open-ended question separately, and then we compared each of our separate memo documents. Uh, how long the the, the paper itself is highly detailed and clearly the processes took a long time. From start to finish, how long did this project take you to, from conception to publication? About a year. Mm. The original ID surfaced in May of 2020, and it mm -hmm. feels like a lifetime ago because it was <laughs> pretty much in the beginning of the pandemic, even though at that point we thought that the first uh, or that the worst part had already passed in terms of lockdowns. And then we carried out the survey in the, um, at the end of summer, early fall. Um, so I'm saying fall here, but I, of course, for the collaborator in Australia, it was spring, but I'm referring here more to the semester system that my university uses, which is also the summer and spring terms that are used in, in the United States. So most of that fall semester, we spent analyzing the data, having meetings discussing, and we submitted it right before Christmas. And then the rest of the, or the coming year or 2021 until publication was spent on the peer review process and replying comments of the reviewers, et cetera, and making changes. Well, thankfully before, you know, the end of uh, 2019, we didn't have the coronavirus. So we, you couldn't have started the study with that focus much before May, but how much of the infrastructure of this project was already in place? For example, the software you're going to use, perhaps the methodologies, the questions, um, because obviously this isn't a turnkey project, it need, needs time to build up. So for yourself and your collaborating co-authors, how much was it that they already had some of the systems in place that could be could be turned on fairly quickly? Yeah, I think when it comes in terms of having used some of the methods, uh, the uh, collaborators who work on the quantitative part, they had already used similar methods and they had their, their scripts that they could 
adapt and run the data through, for example, SPSS. And then for the qualitative part, as I mentioned, we leaned on the experience of one of our collaborators. And then in terms of licenses for the platform, my university has a license and I had already been playing around with it for the project that I mentioned earlier that I had started but left hanging because of the pandemic. And I had also already done um, a request for exemption of a full R IRB review. And so I had the um, passed the exams that my university requires and I, I, I knew what I would need to put together to do the IRB exemption request. But other than that, when it comes to dealing with this topic of academic parents, it was new for all five of us. That's very interesting. Um, the, you note that very early on in your literature review that most literature on academic parents prior to the COVID-19 outbreak had been done mostly on mothers who were in academic careers and mostly in Anglo-Saxon countries. So the fact that you have um, Professor Capaldi from Singapore, uh, Professor Tavares from uh, Australia, Professor Lehmans from Belgium, and Professor Peg Tran from uh, the United States, plus yourself in Ecuador and the Netherlands as well. So we're getting a little, a little bit more uh, of of a of a spread. One of the findings that you come up with when you're talking about possible changes in working conditions for for both parents, and we'll go back to the, in the, the literature review uh, later about that, but that there are more opportunities, and this relates to the to the project that you're doing, then there's the speed with which you could do it. There are more opportunities to work on your own projects with meetings being reduced, the amount of required travel or even uh, travel for leisure that you were going to be doing. Once this pandemic is over and we all pray for uh, a speedy end and a return to some kind of normal, do you think we're going to learn from this? Or do you think we're going to go back to the meetings schedules and the travel or like we are here speaking at two sides of the world um that this kind of uh, teleworking will make our lives a little less stressful i think there's two parts to my answer here and the first part is what i've seen with some of the conferences my in my field particularly that really rushed towards going back to an in-person meeting and they do some of them have to be transferred now back to an online format last minute, but there seemed to have been in May, June, July, really a push towards going back to the old part and doing as much in-person conferences again, um, which then takes away some of the advantages that we found from the virtual conference or, or hybrid forms of conferences that it makes it more accessible for people who live in different countries that it, it's sometimes easier for academic parents because they don't have to worry about childcare. This whole amount of reasons that seem to have been swept under the rug in the rush towards uh, going back to in-person meetings. So there is a, I would say there is a disjoint between what I originally thought there in terms of what we would be seeing after the pandemic or as the pandemic um, fizzles out bit by bit. Uh, I think there will not be a, a hard stop to it, but just a sort of fizzling out of it, is that I had expected there would be much more hybrid, much more 
collaboration through Zoom, etc. And that was not in line with my observation of, especially in my field of rushing towards returning to in-person conferences. And I have been doing some thinking about what we can do to get some of the social aspects back and still avoid that travel. If we come out of the pandemic, we are still faced with a climate crisis that having hundreds of people fly into a conference seems something of decades ago and maybe not something that we want to do anymore. So I do think there is a lot of opportunities for improvement, but maybe there is not as much willingness to, to make those bigger changes that I was expecting to see coming up. I think one of the reasons why we started this podcast is that we we there was a kind of felt need once all the conferences started getting cancelled and it's one of the ways that I mean conferences have been slowly putting um, kind of more online content for people who can't make the travel even before this problem mm -hmm. but you know academics teachers instructors we are kind of social animals we need to kind of hear people's voices and see their faces and um have this kind of interaction. Could I ask you a personal question? How did it affect you and your career having to, to, to move online? Did you find that you had more time to spend with the people you wanted to, or did it uh, negatively affect you because you, you couldn't have this interaction? Yeah, it's a great question. And the first part to my answer here is that since I work part-time in the Netherlands, I could not travel to the lab and see the experiments that were ongoing. And my original plan for summer 2020 was that I would be in the laboratory shoulder to shoulder with my PhD student and we would be working on her experiments together for a good stretch of the summer. So that fell through and I do feel that that as a large miss. I would say in terms of meeting people for short stretches of time, I don't feel that it has changed that much. I was already doing a lot of Zoom and WebEx and whatnot meetings because I'm in Ecuador and traveling for me is not always an option. And um, I had my daughter in 2017. So as long as she is very small, I am also a little bit reluctant to travel more. And I think for anything that is these once in a while meeting, it, I don't feel that there's that much of a miss in the personal interaction, but where it comes to working with people for a longer stretch of time, such as being in the laboratory together for weeks on end, that I do think is something that, that is still very valuable and that, that I still miss. I think it comes down to particularly when you are supervising somebody and you say that the shoulder to shoulder, like being in the same room, looking at the same data directly, I think it really does help with things like decision making, directing. It's it's more difficult to do even if you, you can actually see the person on the camera, but it's really difficult to do over email. But in terms of things like meetings that we hold to make decisions about at the administration level, I found over the last year that decision making became a lot easier because we moved a lot of these meetings to email and then mm -hmm. only the people who had the expertise or only people who had opinions would chime in. There'd be a space of like three or four days where questions were asked and then compiled at the end of it. So again, uh, these, these new ways of kind of that kind of stress reduction, I think has been something that I've noticed. Um, but I do miss conferences. I will, I will admit that. Let's let's talk about childcare, um, particularly as it relates to. Because I have I have two children. They're not not as 
at small at eight and 11. So they were at home for the very early part of the pandemic in, in Japan, but they never really looked to close any of the schools after the semester started again in April. And they've maintained that all the way through. So we didn't have that extra stress of them being home all the day well, until the summer holidays arrived and then the stress returned. But as a father, I was interested in one of the findings about how employers, there was reports of employers kind of paying lip service to the idea of, oh, you can spend more time with your kids or, you know, they said that there's a kind of lack of empathy then requiring even more of them while they were at home. So even though they were charged with taking care of their children in their own homes, the level of work didn't go down. Can you, uh, could you give us some more details on that point? Yes, and one of the findings there is as well that this would have been the same for both academic mothers and fathers. So the juggling of having children in the same physical space as where you try to be working is one of the challenges that came through for many of our respondents. And that came through in the pressures related to time as in needing to be helping children with virtual school, but also at the same time preparing online teaching materials, which for many of us was a, a major shift in the way we're teaching. And it also came through in some of the responses then the respondent felt that they had no calm and quiet space anywhere to think and do their research. So it came not just in, in the demands on time, but also feeling you are in the same physical space cooped up with other people, and there is not that space and quiet to think and do research. It's it's interesting as, a, as an academic, when you then kind of take a 20-year step back and see your children's homework, uh, I was reminded of everything that I really don't know. And also why I moved to qualitative rather than quantitative when I saw my son's uh, elementary school maths homework. And I'm more kind of like, I think I know the answer, but just go and check with your mom because she's, you know. So anyway, um, when it comes to online teaching materials, how difficult, did you get some sense of how difficult it was for teachers who were so used to face-to-face, teacher-fronted, what my colleague Jonathan likes to call the sage on the stage kind of teaching and then having to try and translate that long tested methodology into an online class did you get any sense of how difficult that was not so much how difficult it was precisely but we do see if we look at the results um, in terms of impact on the teaching versus the research that People did what was necessary to adapt the teaching because that became the top priority and the research fell much more to the bottom. So if we see the amount of negative or extremely negative impact, that's more on the research side than it's on the teaching side in what we've seen results of the of the survey. We didn't really ask people about their experiences with the online teaching. Some of that came through in the um, open answer or answers to the open questions, I should say, people saying that they were recording videos in their closet, that they were recording videos at 2 a.m., just trying to get the video material or the teaching material ready and giving that priority for the students. It's an interesting thing that I, I still haven't managed to learn, like that, that, that time shifting, whether, you know, you get locked into 8.30 till 5 or 5.30 and that's my office time and, you know, this is lunchtime and these are the 
times when the bell's going to ring, um, and uh, how much you then have to reappraise when things get done, like getting up at 6 a.m. to do like a 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., then breakfast, breakfast with the kids, then a schedule of their study and things like that. Time shifting is something, and particularly if you're dealing with different parts uh, of the world. Another thing that I wanted to look at is from the conclusion of the paper. We'll go back and look at specific details in a, in a moment, but it relates to how universities as an administration, as, a, as an institution, the lessons that le they're learning, because we learned how to, you know, uh, juggle different responsibilities in the house. We learned how to collaborate with people around the world, create new opportunities, research spaces, things like that. But how much do you think that the institutions learned? Your recommendations are that the new normal, uh, to quote uh, the paper, should be include tailor-made solutions. So uh, the ability to, for, you know, different employees to not be in such like a cookie cutter kind of role. And you suggest things like investing in human capital, uh, the wellness of people and work-life balance. How much do you think that the institutions have learned from this and how much do you think this is possible going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the answer also depends on the university. We do see the case of, for example, the Vrije Universiteit Brussel, the University of Brussels, where they have declared themselves as a compassionate university and they put compassion as their core value and center and as a central part of their policies. And we also see, for example, that TU Delft in the Netherlands has developed a lot of tools, both for their students, their doctoral candidates and their faculty for working on their well-being. And it has been um, more accessible, for example, to get access to a coach or somebody to talk to, to help you get, give some ideas on how to balance your workload and how to make better decisions. All of them, especially the talking to a coach, et cetera, those are still actions at a personal level. And even when it comes to the general pressures of ideas on publication outputs, et cetera, that is slow to change still. But I do think, and it's a more speculation from my side here because I, uh, I don't have a glass ball here that I can look into and, and see the future, but I hope and do believe that we are undergoing a shift in, in the world. And then as we are looking for more sustainable solutions in not just how to reduce our carbon footprint, et cetera, but also how to live more balanced lives and uh, uh, go towards a circular economy and uh, a stable growth there, I think will be the opportunities for academics as well to have a maybe more balanced life or more space for the different parts in the different seasons in their life than uh, that go with having children and then leaning out and leaning in when necessary. Well, I hope that that compassion does at least form a part of universities policy towards uh, towards their hiring towards their, you know, as you say, the requirements to for promotion, uh, and also in their in their regular lives. I, I'm uh, we're not a video podcast, but I can actually show this uh, to Professor Longsucht. Um, although I'm, I'm not sure whether you speak Japanese. This is actually a, a flyer that we got today about um, for the reduction or the ending of harassment. They're, they're actually going to have anger management counseling for perhaps for people who are under a lot of stress at the moment. And they might take it out on their, uh, 
their inferiors or subordinates. I think I probably probably better to say. So uh, I hope that I hope that you're right um, as an employee and not someone who makes these kind of decisions. But uh, I do hope so. Well, let's get into the specifics of the paper and particularly um, just to go to circle back and talk about the the actual size of it. Uh, the qualitative uh, data was drawn from a survey of 304 responses, which is a pretty large pool of uh, responses. How did how did it break down from the different areas? Was there was it fairly balanced between the five sites? Sorry, the six sites. We had a large representation, especially in the countries where each of us are based. So when it comes down to the continents, there was more obviously more skewed towards the countries where we are located rather than the neighboring countries, for example. So we do see a large number of respondents from the United States, Belgium and the Netherlands, Ecuador, Australia, and then other countries more uh, distributed throughout. And uh, to talk a little bit about the analysis, it, it, it's termed in the paper to be inductive thematic analysis, but it, it is a form of I believe a grounded theory in, in the idea that you don't arrive uh, at the beginning with a theory that you're going to then test or or, or refute, um, but that the theory is is inductive. It's it's developed as that's going through. And you said that this wasn't uh, a methodology that you'd used before, right? One of the collaborators had used this before. Yes. But how how did you feel about this this process? Did you find it quite easy to get on with? Did it uh, inform any of your other work that you're going to do in the future? Once I understood the aspects of it, it made a lot of sense to me. And I, I think it was as well for the type of data we had the right choice because we, and in the beginning we had, of course, the information from the literature review, but add COVID to it and you are exploring things in the dark. Um, so I, I think the choice was a, uh, um, an appropriate choice for the type of data that we had. And it did inform some of the further work or future work that I've then been doing um, research that's more related to the doctoral defense. Yeah, the idea is that for people who've not used this kind of analysis before, the idea is that you take the entire data set, you read through and if, and if keywords and concepts come out, they're given a tag. And then you try and find patterns within the data that you draw out from your experiences by having this concurrent concurrent memo and then at, when you get the end you have this this code system which then can then be collapsed and collapsed and collapsed until you find some um usable data so i i picked out some of the points that i found it uh, quite uh, interesting uh were there any things that you wanted to highlight from the the qualitative part of your work um, in terms of the findings we Originally, our plan was to look at both challenges and opportunities, and we hoped to maybe find the silver lining or find both the, the black and white in the answers. And we did find more challenges than opportunities, but the type of opportunities that we found and that were generated, and some of them we talked about already with less time spent on travel, those those opportunities that arose from there, I do think they are valid lessons to take into the future. And the challenges are parts to reflect on as we um, as we discussed how the administration deals with reviewing the performance of their academics and their academic parents throughout these pandemic years. 
I'm I'm looking here at, at one of the points because uh, uh, you you look at university support, childcare arrangements, schooling, and then the socio demographic breakdown of that as well. Based on your literature review, was there anything that was very different about the university or or personal response to this uh, to this issue of academic parenting from before COVID and during COVID? I don't think there are such clear differences before and after COVID, but, and I'm paraphrasing one of the respondents here as I don't recall the exact words. One of the respondents mentioned, we're dealing with a pandemic, we're working from home with the kids at home, and all of that together is a major challenge. So it's it's the challenge of being an academic parent. It's the challenge of the pandemic, and the two together is makes it just a, magnifies a problem so much. Uh, it looks like from the responses that the all of the problems were already there, but they were kind of diffused over time, or they were diffused over uh, various stages of a person's career, but this kind of this these past 18 months has kind of accelerated and concentrated all of them at once so it perhaps was unfortunate well it wasn't unfortunate it wasn't perhaps unfortunate it was very unfortunate that this happened but from the information that we get from it it's to be hoped that we emerge from the other side of it with a better view of, of how to approach these in the future mm. so moving on to the the quantitative side of it would would it be right to say that you are more in quantitative data than qualitative data? Uh, generally, yes, but the type of methods that I typically use within the civil engineering field and the type of statistics that we use is still different from the way we deal with these surveys. So it was, part of it was new for me still. So uh, let's focus on the opportunities then. I, I, I picked out one very, the, the first one that you, you note um, of increased work productivity due to less traveling. Was this something that was uh, more likely to happen for perhaps families that had two parents in the home where one person could take care of the, of the childcare? Um, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm not quite sure about the answer because it does also depend on the age of the children and the type of childcare that they had available. Some of them still could send their children to school, some not. So there's a, um, the, all the additional factors involved tend to be different for the respondents individually. And we had a third of the respondents talking a lot about digital tools, cloud environments, and the themes that were that they these were all opportunities that perhaps they hadn't even looked into before. Has again this um, this pandemic, which has accelerated issues and difficulties, also perhaps accelerated the use of these digital tools among people who would never really have looked at them in the past. Yes, and that's something that also came out of the results. People now really had to look for ways to share uh, information online, where in the past maybe you would have printed out a paper and dropped it on the desk of your colleague. To give a very simple example now, at least you would have had to email it or maybe share it on a shared drive. And I do see a lot of tools which relate to working together in on shared documents, that has come out as something that has been accelerated by these events. 
it was something that came out. I can give you a specific example from our uh, university. We are subscribers to the Office 365 suite of tools, and we're all very used to using things like Word, Excel, PowerPoint. Uh, many of us understood OneDrive and Teams, but some people hadn't, so we had to do it in, interest in that. What we didn't know was how bad the uh, Skype for Business was, given the fact that most Mac users, and that's becoming a larger proportion of our students, I think about 15 to 20% of our students only had Mac products, uh, can't use Skype for Business. They can see the video, but they can't access the audio. So that was a real problem for us at the very beginning. And so that's why most of us have switched to Zoom and then to uh, WebEx, and then we're, we're moving more over to that because some of the tools for interactivity, sharing documents, things like that are a little bit better. But it took us about a month in our department to put together about 150 page document with screenshots and links and things to walk people through uh, this. So I think that even afterwards, we'll see pe more people using the online tools that are available to them. Uh, we actually had to switch out our server for our course management system to one that had a higher capacity. Um, because so many more people uh, were using it. The, in your discussion section, at the very beginning of your literature review, you note that, and I mentioned it before, that most of the research had been done uh, on uh, academic women, and mostly in, in a certain number of contexts. How well do you think that your team has uh, contributed to the gap that was looking at uh, academic couples, academic parents, academic fathers, and having all voices shared on this topic. Yes, and one of the major findings of our study is that both academic mothers and academic fathers had a negative impact or observed a negative impact on their research and um, they had the same challenges. and that maybe in contrast to some of the findings that really looked at, for example, publication output of women in the first months of the pandemic as compared to men, if you factor in the parenting role, we do find that both academic mothers and fathers have faced the same challenges. And as, for example, in couples where one is the academic who can be working from home and the other may be in a role that requires, for example, a physician who has to go in, in the hospital, and there's a, a, a quote of an academic father in, in the paper which who is in that situation. The person who is at home becomes the default parent who deals with helping the children with, the, uh, with their virtual schooling. And from our results, we found that gender didn't matter, matter that much anymore. If you look at the way these parents talk about the way they were dividing their time before the pandemic and then during the pandemic, we do see that before the pandemic, academic mothers had less leisure than academic fathers. They were spending more time on childcare, more time on household tasks. But during the pandemic, it has become much more equal. That's a good thing to hear. I mean, it's one of the things that before the pandemic, I, I have a, a good balance of uh, people at, different genders, different ages, different uh, careers, but mostly in academia. And it did seem to be the women who were doing a lot less of the things that they wanted to do and a lot of the, more of the things that they, that they had to do either at home or in their job. Um, my wife until recently had stayed at home for 
uh, since the, the children had been born. And she took a lot of uh, pride in making sure that they were well prepared for school, that they, you know, they had a good meal when they came home and that the house was clean. And it was good to join that life for a little while and, and divide up the tasks and learn a little bit more. I'm certainly better at cooking than I was before the pandemic. I'm trying to create a balanced meal and not just pasta every day. Um, so the paper we've been talking about is challenges and opportunities for academic parents uh, during COVID-19. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about yourself because you're in a very interesting situation that you are working in both Ecuador and the Netherlands. So uh, how did that come about? So I did my PhD in the Netherlands and my husband is originally from Ecuador. So after I got my PhD and he got his PhD in the US, we were looking for a place or at least a country where both of us would be able to find positions. And at that point, we were both looking at academic positions. And that's what we found in, in Ecuador. But at the same time, I really wanted to continue the research that I was doing in the Netherlands. So I explored the opportunity of staying on as a part-time postdoc originally, and then they um, amplified the amount of uh, or the fraction of the full-time equivalents that I was working. So by now I, um, I'm in a tenure position there on a part-time basis. And you have, do you have PhD students in both universities? Only in the Netherlands actually, because in Ecuador we have mostly education at the bachelor's level. We have a master's of engineering, which has had one cohort and I guess that soon they will start the second cohort um, and we do not have PhD programs. Now, you have talked about, and one of the things from your background research is you have your own academic blog called uh, How I Work. How long have you been running that? I've been blogging since I was a PhD student. So I've been blogging since 2010. And so it's been a while. And the series of interviews that I did on there, email written interviews on how I work. I think they have been going around since, I think 2012. And do you only interview people from your field of expertise or do you reach out to people who have different interests? I reach out to people in mostly academics, but I've also sent the questions to people in other creative fields. So let's do a little bit of on-the-fly inductive thematic analysis on your blog. So, of course, you haven't done, I guess you haven't done this, you haven't tagged and memoed and used it for anything as a research exercise, but what myself and my colleague Jonathan have done, we've produced a couple of, well, we've produced a, a, an academic paper and a, and a book chapter based on the interviews that we do here. So we've actually used the interviews as a, a source of qualitative data. Um, what can you see about the patterns of people in different fields? Is there anything that you've noticed? Is there anything when you send out your questions that you kind of expect before the answers come back? I have a subset of questions for academic parents. So <laughs> there, um, one thing that comes up for academic parents is, of course, childcare, how they arrange childcare, how childcare sometimes, or the lack thereof, is sometimes a struggle in combination with academic work. So that's a, a topic then um, that surfaces regularly. But then when it comes to how people work and how they do their creative work, some people write at five o'clock in the morning, others write at 10, 11 p.m. 
some write with music, some write without music, or some hate having sound around when they need to write. Uh, so I would say it's, it's a very individual process. And perhaps even that thinking about what works best for a, a given person and acknowledging your, yourself as an individual and finding what works best for you as an individual, instead of trying to copy maybe a, a successful researcher who has blogged about his or her, their methods. I think acknowledging your your individuality and figuring out what works best for you is, I would say, maybe a tip that I can give based on all these different interviews that I've done and read. Well, let's uh, put that into action in the work that you do with your PhD. You currently have one PhD student in the Netherlands, right? I have, we supervise in, um, in committees. Okay. So sometimes we are as daily supervisor, and in one form or another, I'm currently involved with three students in the Netherlands in their supervision, and also three that are at different universities. So one in Brazil, one in Colombia, and one in Denmark. And so, you know, extrapolating from what you've just said from your data analysis of your, of your blog interviews, when a student comes to you with a specific problem, like, uh, well, something that I have a problem with when I went, um, writer's block or procrastination or not being able to see when you talked about uh, trying to work out the patterns in the data of uh, something that Nate Silver, uh, who is a noted quantitative analysis, uh, analyst, uh, he talks about the signal and the noise and how oftentimes the noise, what you're picking up is noise and you, you don't get that. So oftentimes data analysis is, is difficult to see. So if if a student came to you with one of those specific problems, what would be your advice, for example, writer's block? Yeah, then it aligns with what I've said previously in trying to get to the bottom of why you're experiencing that feeling. So, and that depends on the person, whether you it works best for you to journal about it or talk to a person that really find the source of the writer's block. So is it that you're afraid that what you'll be doing next is not going to be good enough? Is it because you still have to do a big chunk of the work and it's scary, mm. so you don't feel like getting to it? Is it because you are, you've just burned up all your fuel and you are depleted and can't go on and you need a holiday or a break of some sort? So there's a variety of reasons why people run into writer's block and finding out the proverbial iceberg that sits under the water is key there before you start with tips as in try to write a thousand words try to do you know work in in bursts of 25 minutes all these uh, kind of popular advices that you find around which can be helpful but you need to know first what is the reason for the writer's block and what has built up over time so that you've hit the wall before you can cure it curing is a big word before you can digest it and learn from it and then move forward so that kind of motivation sometimes but that's why the question of, of why why are you doing it what you know why are you uh, focusing on this task oftentimes can can readjust recalibrate your work um based on your own work and also perhaps on the paper that we've been speaking about today uh, if a new phd student a graduate student who was interested in this kind of 
um, sociological study, in-depth, long-form sociological study. Uh, what areas would you recommend that they take a look at to provide inspiration for their research question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a lot of open questions that we still have. There is, of course, following up after the pandemic or as the pandemic fizzles out, how academic parents fare and the impact of these pandemic years on their career and how they experience the impact and how their universities deal with their annual evaluation and potentially what's the longer term impact on their careers. The other part that we've seen is that we found that there is less difference between academic mothers and fathers. And the question there is, is that just a temporary thing of uh, the physical boundaries of being cooped up in the house and becoming the default parents and do the traditional gender roles reverse back when uh, we start to work from our offices again? That I think is an interesting aspect. And in general, there's not been done that much work on academic parents in general. As, as we discussed previously, it's been mostly academic models. So really looking at academic parents or academic fathers or people that are in other constellations of, for example, same-sex couples, single parents, all of that is very what we know about that. That's also one of the, I would say, shortcomings of our study that the vast majority were people that were in a um, straight relationship and that were co-parenting with somebody. We didn't have many um, single parents. We only had two or three respondents who identified as uh, not male or female, so non-binary. So all of those aspects still are to be explored. We also had a majority of white respondents, so really looking at the experiences of people from minorities would be interesting. And we did see that we had a larger or a steeper drop-off in how people went through the survey, because the survey was rather lengthy, of people from minorities. So we saw a sharper drop-off from, from people who are either single parents or from a, a minority. So that still requires further study. And then one of the things that we found as well is that in, in some of the cases, we found that the associate professors are the group of, of faculty members that report to be having the largest negative impact. So really finding what is it that makes the mid-career part so sticky for many people. And uh, I, I did read in, in some other works that it's been called as a, the mid-career minefield and along those lines. So looking further into the particular challenges of people who are mid-career um, may be interesting as well. You do note in the analysis of the work that it may not have affected people at later stages in their career as much because maybe they don't have those publication requirements. Maybe they, they do understand how to uh, use these tools. And oftentimes, the actual required interaction with students is far less than for people at the assistant or associate level. So uh, just a shout out to my fellow associates on that. Just you know, keep fighting, you'll mm -hmm. get there. And a final question, what's next for you? Or are you already working on your next project? In terms of, I'm actually wrapping up um, a project that is related to the doctoral defense and how doctoral candidates experience the doctoral defense. And other than that, I am uh, spending again more time on the research related to load testing of bridges and breaking reinforced concrete slabs. 
Oh, the good stuff. Yes. <laughs> All of it is fun. <laughs> well, thank you very much uh, for your time uh, today, uh, Dr. Langsucht. So to repeat, uh, we've been talking about the paper, the challenges and opportunities for academic parents during COVID-19. Thank you very much for your time today, and I wish you all the best with your future research. Thank you so much for having me. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.